This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, gunpowder crackers and cancelling Christmas, the myths surrounding common Christmas practices. (laughs) It's Yule time! It is. Um, And obviously we are here to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, a happy solstice, a debauched Saturnalia, if that's your thing, (laughs) a good Krampusnacht and a cool Yule. Season's greetings to all our listeners. (laughs) This is obviously our festive episode. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, The weather has been uh, cold, certainly here in in England. Um, We've had snow, so I do hope that everyone is all tucked in and uh, as warm as can be, and uh, that uh, you are excited for the upcoming festivities, um, if your festivities have not already begun. (laughs) Now, uh, every year we delve into something of the custom and practices around Christmas and Yule, and uh, this year we thought we'd come at it from a slightly different angle. We're going to be looking at common beliefs around winter festivities and playing a little game of true or false. Well, as far as we are able. Um, With some of these, the origins of the tradition are shrouded in mystery and historians have argued about them for centuries. We will give you our best and most rigorously researched attempt at an answer, but of course, there is a reason why they're still debated to this day. <laughs> and it's not just because a lot of people enjoy a good Christmas argument. Yes. Um, a small caveat, the subject of Christmas can be a slightly sensitive one for those who celebrate it or for any of its counterparts um, as a religious observance. Yeah. It's never our, atten- our intention to step on anyone's religious beliefs. Um, Even if we accidentally pop a few bubbles with this episode, we urge you to remember that the meaning you ascribe to a particular piece of symbolism is what matters in the privacy of your own faith, and everyone should be respectful of another person's search for meaning in life, and as far as possible, we include religion in that. So um, we're really not attempting to step on anyone. I realise that, particularly me, I cannot help poking at conceits when I see them. Um, Mm. Generally, that doesn't mean that that's a judgment on you. Yeah. That's that's a judgment on, hmm, that's an odd way that's arranged. And that includes my own personal faiths and beliefs as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a terrible um, person to go to a church with in that respect, any <laughs> any religious observance with, because I cannot help taking the sidestep and going, yes, but this is a bit peculiar. So Yeah. So, yeah, so please remember that um, as we're going in. And as we said before, um, we can only provide answers based on the research that we have undertaken. Um, And for a lot of these things, there is no simple answer to it. So with that in mind, let's get into it. So. (laughs) Okay, let's just, let's take it in turns, shall we? Yeah, okay, all right. So... So, uh... (laughs) All right, I'm, I'm going to start then. Okay. So, uh, the... Um, is it true or false? <laughs> yeah, is this true or false? So, uh, the traditional Christmas dinner was originally a roast boar head. <laughs> going to give you a moment there, guys. Um, do we think it's true or false? Cast your votes. <laughs> it is true. It is true. Yeah, there is a long-standing Christmas tradition, which has fallen by the wayside somewhat, I wonder why, (laughs) of uh, roasting a boar's head and bringing it in dressed in holly with great ceremony on Christmas Day. Yeah, for some reason, people, most people, no longer want a pig's head for Christmas dinner. Can't think why. Can't think why. Um, (laughs) Also, to be honest, there aren't really that many wild boar running around in in england anymore though um if you get into the uh, onto the continent um <laughs> i don't know there's about twenty five thousand in this country not yeah but not as many they're hiding <laughs> they're just you down the road from me in the forest of dean <laughs> <laughs> right guys time to start the tradition again 
Um, okay, but the practice has its origins in the Roman festival of um, Saturnalia and was continued all the way up until the 17th century. It took a bit of a break and then um, was a traditional Christmas meal again for a few years until it started being supplanted with roast beef, goose, and in Victorian times we did start to get turkeys as well. But it lingers on in ham and pigs in blankets, which are served as a staple today um, as part of the Christmas meal. Yes. Now, <laughs> the... <laughs> This is what, why would you have roast pig? Well, I mean, there's there's lots of reasons why roast boar meat, etc. Um, this is the time of year when it was traditional to hunt boar mm-hmm. on foot with spears. And you wanted a spear if you were hunting a boar. You wanted a long-range weapon. Um, yeah. But it goes all the way back to ancient Greece and uh, Hippocrates, who theorised that there were four main humours in the body, and these were black bile, yellow bile, blood and phlegm. And in the winter months, phlegm and black bile were supposed to rise and make you more damp and melancholic, less um, receptive to doing exercises, less receptive if you're a man to doing your duty in a sexual way and procreating. And boar was considered to be a warming meat, which would help redress these humours and make you, if you were a man, more likely to be willing to procreate and produce children, which is what you were supposed to be doing over the winter months. Yeah, which is, it is very funny, because in terms of the most popular month for children to be born is September, and that is because people are getting it on at Christmas, and just pointing that out there. Even without the roast ball. Um, I just yeah. want to briefly mention Terry Pratchett's The Hogfather, because I, I loved that book, and I don't think I quite realised that he was poking fun at the whole tradition of the boar's head with that book. The sort of, I thought it was a weird, quirky... quirky um, Pratchettism to say, oh yes, the hog father goes round with his sleigh bringing toys and roast pork products, and quite often you leave out a pork pie for the hog father, which seemed a bit mm. weird since he's supposed to be a pig in a red suit. And it's just, it's only now, uh, much later, that I've gone, oh, you were you were poking fun at the whole Saturnalia medieval humours type thing. <laughs> anyway, brilliant book. You should totally read it. It's very Christmassy too. Yeah. Okay. okay. Okay, my, I'll do this one. True or okay. false, no one was born on the 25th of December. Okay, that's a sweeping statement, but no one, <laughs> no specific God was born on the 25th of December. Mm, I feel like this is a trick one. Yeah, could be. <laughs> this Go is on, both, tell us. This is both... <laughs> This is both true and false, depending on your point of view. But if you're looking for a very definite, yes, this was the date and it was 20 minutes past 10 in the morning or whatever type answer, you're not going to get one, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, if we talk about the historical figure, Jesus, Yeshua, he was most likely born sometime between June and September. In fact, you can work out details from the Gospels, such as the fact the sheep would be out on the hillside. So it obviously wasn't winter because it would have been too cold. Um, they were travelling to a census, or well, the most popular months for calling a census, and the fact that there was actually a great games being held at that particular time as well, um, were June and September. There were various other details in there as well, which suggest he was actually born in either June or September, which were also popular months for this particular group of Hellenic Jews to aim to get their children in at. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, now, since uh the, you know september's a likely candidate because the hellenic jewish sect his family was part of deliberately aimed to produce children in that month um, i won't go into all the details but it's really interesting um, especially children who would be born of david's royal line and would therefore have a future role as religious and political leaders again you could almost get a you know if we were in that sort of history podcast religious type um genre which we're not we're more writing and folklore Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a really interesting subject to look at and you'd get a series of podcasts out of it. It's it's a big <laughs> subject. But no, was it the 25th of December? No, not really. No. <laughs> um, like I said, September uh, September is, uh, is the date because people are getting randy at Christmas. I'm just pointing it out. They were getting randy at Christmas before it was Christmas. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Horus was born on the 25th of December. Uh, mm. Not not really. 
<laughs> Ancient Egyptian calendars do not work like our modern calendars, and they did not work like the Gregorian or Julian calendars we use now. Uh, mm. Basically, they didn't count leap years, and that's just one of many differences. Um, so the calendar was migratory, by which logic Horus, the god, the young god, <laughs> was born mid-July, probably, um, and September, and mid-October, and so on. So <laughs> it wasn't a fixed point in the year. However, his birth may well have been celebrated in the latter Egyptian era as part of the winter festivities. Yeah, because the obviously the pro this is the problem when we talk about Egypt. That's they they were there for a while, <laughs> and yep. they did adjust their calendar. And therefore, the, when they did adjust their calendar, um, you started to get the sort of the births and stuff like that being more ascribed within certain seasons. So you really can't translate it in the same way, um, which is why we can have this idea of Horus perhaps being settled on and being celebrated during the winter festivities, whereas before it wouldn't have been a set point. Yeah. Uh, Tammuz was born on the 25th of December. We can blame this one on the fanatical anti-Catholic Alexander Hislop. He was a Thank Scottish you, minister <laughs> uh, and a conspiracy theorist. He published a book in 1853 determined to prove that Catholicism was just a rebranded form of a pagan Babylonian religion. His assertion was that Tammuz, an ancient Mesopotamian god, was connected with Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah in the Torah or Bible. Hislop stated that Nimrod married his mother and had a child called Tammuz, who was Nimrod reborn. However, there is absolutely no evidence of this. Literally, the only place it shows up is, is in Hislop's book. <laughs> so, um, there you go. <laughs> he was really trying very, very hard. He was very trying. He did not like the Catholics. <laughs> no. He did not like the way they celebrated Christmas. Um, um, Mithras. Mithras. Now, Mith Mithras was born on the 25th. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, no one actually knows how the Mithraic cult started. Uh, Mithras was originally an angelic being from the earlier Zoroastrian religion, and the cult existed between the 1st and 4th centuries ACE. Mithras was the god of Roman soldiers especially, although if you look at the complexity of the practices, which were a mix of Greek and Persian myth, including mm. the initiations and the various levels of superiority and things, it looks like an early version of the, the Freemasons, basically. Mm. Now, Mithras did have a connection with the older Roman god Sol, which is not surprising because the Romans connected their gods with counterparts in every religion. And they the literally couldn't help themselves. <laughs> they, they could not, no, we must, find, we must find a way to ascribe meaning to this. Um, the Roman festival of Sol Invictus allegedly took place in December, although some years it may have been October, so we're not really sure. Uh, but in 274 BCE, the Roman emperor at that time dedicated a temple to Sol Invictus on, or to Sol at the Sol Invictus festival on the 25th of December. So uh, around four, around the fourth century BCE, uh, around, sorry, around the fourth century ACE, even um, Mithras Sol's birthday became the 25th of December. Of course, one must remember that there is a very important event that happens very close to the 25th of December, which does involve the sun. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and again, you have the calendars migrating at that time. Mm. And you, the, I don't think people really understand with the calendars. There was a time when you would be celebrating Christmas in England and you'd go over the channel to the France and they'd literally have just had Halloween because they didn't they didn't use the same cal calendar. Yeah. Th this was all the way up into sort of like the, the middle Tudor era and later. So yeah. I don't think it's um, I don't think it's really all that surprising that if you go all the way back to the fourth century, that, that there might have been a few things slipping back and forth. Um, and the only recorded record we have of this was, uh, I think, written down in the 12th century by a monk in a margin note. And it looks like he might have been quite drunk while he wrote it. <laughs> Typical. <laughs> but it suggests that this was the the it was first celebrated as Mithras's birthday, the fourth century A.C.E., two hundred years after Christ's death, when the early form of Christmas was already being celebrated. Bear in mind, the early form of Christmas looked nothing like Christmas as we knew it a few centuries after that. So, in conclusion, no one was born on the twenty fifth of December, or were they? <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. 
that's a whole other complicated thing. Um, so let's let's hop on to the next ones. All right. So Yule doesn't predate Christmas. <laughs> uh, yeah. True or I, false? <laughs> it was it was false. I'm sorry. I again don't want to poke fun at anybody, but this is very definitely. Cri- I've seen Christians specifically saying this because they don't like the idea that. Christmas might have its root in, roots in some pagan traditions, um, but yeah. it, it, it's false, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> we know that the term Yuletide wasn't used until around 1475, and it's true that the word Yule, as we recognise it in language now, may not have existed in its current incarnation before 300 AD. But to use that as evidence to suggest that a Christmas was celebrated as a festival independently of pagan origins before the world the word Yule was used, and B, that the choice of dates for Christmas had nothing to do with one religion subsuming and even oppressing another, is honestly willfully ignorant at best. Yes. Um, A little bit of etymology, because you know how I love to throw that in. The word mm-hmm. Yule has a pretty clear etymology uh, chain of logic from the Old Norse Yul or Yulnir. Um, so, uh, sorry, Yulnir was one of the names of Odin. It literally means the Yule one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can trace it through the Old English Yul, and has it has cognates with Icelandic Faroese and Norwegian Yul, Yir, and the Danish and Swedish Jul. Um, most likely it was derived from the Proto-Germanic Yulwe. Uh, no one has yet managed to find a Proto-Indo-European origin, so its pedigree remains unknown. However, it's absolutely certain that its roots do in fact predate Christianity by a few thousand years. Now, the term Yule originally referred to a two-month period during the coldest part of winter, with the Yule festival occurring around or on the winter solstice. It was specific to the Germanic peoples, which included the Norse, the Gauls, the Jutes, the Goths, and of course, later on, the Anglo-Saxons. But its roots are in Germanic legend. Odin as the Yule one brought gifts, but also punishments. Yule was a time of reckoning. Sometimes it was a time of sacrifice. Um, The death of what came to be known as the Year King is well attested in many cultures. It was also linked with the Wild Hunt. Yeah, and Odin's Wild Hunt tend to be full of Draug, or, um, you know, the dead. The dead would rise up and ride across the night sky, and if you'd been a bad person that year, you you needed to watch out. Yep. Um, Yeah. Sorry, carry on. Well, I was going to say... While Yule itself was Germanic, there are equivalents in almost all European and Slavic cultures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One name for the festival is Modrenit, which is Mother's Night. And while this has echoes in Norwegian traditions even now, it referred to a time of year when the great mother goddess gave birth to the next year king. Yeah. Um, Now, if if you're going, well, but hold on a second, what about in, um, in England and things like that? Well... We do know that Bronze Age people in Britain celebrated a great festival, which involved eating lots of meat, games, and most likely a lot of sexual activity around the winter solstice. Um, there's archaeological evidence which supports this. A basic understanding of anthropology would suggest that this tradition grew out of an even older tradition celebrated at the same time of year. We've literally been celebrating a big hunt, ritual, sacrifice, and feast around the winter solstice since we lived in caves. Yeah. So basically trying to suggest that it wasn't a well-established winter festival until after early Christians started formally commemorating the birth of Christ around 125 ACE is just a bit nuts, really. Um, Mm. It doesn't mean your winter festival is now redundant, but you also don't have to trample on anyone else's. Yeah. However, the customs now celebrated by pagans are largely borrowed traditions taken from many sources. Yeah, we lost a lot of stuff. Yeah, when paganism had its great revival, a lot was recovered by being made up. Again, it's the importance you put on the symbolism and not the symbol itself that matters. Um, So this is, you know, this is also pagans saying, oh, we've been doing this for thousands of years. Um, You have, but not exactly like that. (laughs) No, 
you're kind of you're doing the cuddly version you know <laughs> yeah and, that, and um that's fine it is fine but i think um, we also and i say this as a pagan you also don't get to sort of cock a snook at other people's winter religions even if it is a bit annoying when they insist they're the only one yeah um i agree and of course you know the fact of the matter is is that some of if we do look at sort of the way that Christianity is, the way that Christmas is celebrated in Europe, particularly in the UK and stuff like that, a lot of the traditions that are associated now with Christmas, we are probably the, the sort of the oldest elements of, of paganism, which have actually <laughs> survived in some respects. Um, so yeah, okay. Right, go right. on, Jules. Okay. True or false, Christmas trees are idolatrous, or trees are only decorated or worshipped at Christmas. Ooh, I know this one. <laughs> it's false! <laughs> it is false. I think it depends on your definition of idolatry. I have kind of a problem with that word as well, but this isn't yet yeah. another... Th I, I was an equal opportunities offender, okay? When I was doing research for this podcast, I looked at various different religions and various different platforms and things, and... I'm really sorry, guys, but the Christians were the ones who came out and said idolatry about trees a lot. And <laughs> this is not to say that this is representative of all Christianity, because Christianity is an umbrella term for many different subsects of, of religion Yeah. Um, that follow that particular path. And a lot of people are fine with Christmas trees, and if you're not fine with Christmas trees, that's also okay, as long as you're not crapping on anyone else's fun, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, we are um, back to symbolism here. And yes. <laughs> I do remember as a child um, at convent school, I was certainly told that evergreens represented the everlasting life offered by God, um, which I don't know, that kind of took the fun out of it for me in a way, because um, to me it was sort of a magical thing. And then it was a case of, oh, the reason we bring in evergreens and holly and stuff is because it's green all through the year. Ergo, you know, you'll never die if you, you know, follow this religion, etc. Which is... Sorry. I'm just laughing though because it's like a oh yes they represent the ever live ever living sort of everlasting life offered by God so we're gonna kill them by bringing them in. Yeah. I mean they do stay green for a while but yeah. Um, incidentally, uh, it's exactly what the pre-Christians used the evergreen for, and this is one where it's quite difficult. The origins are a bit shady, um, mm. but the most likely. I mean, because many people, including the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks, etc., used to bring in evergreen branches and things at certain festivals, not necessarily wintertime, um, mm. to represent rebirth. So it's a symbol that has long roots, and I don't think any one religion has got the complete right to say it's entirely theirs. It's kind of, this, this one belongs to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know probably our first example of kind of tree trimmings comes out of the heathen custom of tying wishes to trees on high days and holidays um and again if you were trying to conceive and stuff like that um and it, it, it kind of goes back a fairly long way yeah. um and across many many different cultures um and despite what's been claimed um, that this was, you know, sympathetic magic, not direct to tree worship, and wasn't regulated, you know, it wasn't regulated just to midwinter, um, as anyone who's trimmed may trees knows. Um, I also do think that there's probably also a very practical element, which is that if you wanted to decorate your house, if you wanted to make something look a bit different, choosing things in nature which were in abundance and which were vibrant in colour probably makes sense yeah you, can't, we, you we, don't have as many flowers and stuff like that but you know that the, the holly has got that bright green and the nice shape with the red berries that's great put it on the table yeah you're probably not going to bring in a few dead branches of birch are you it's not the same thing <laughs> um yeah and in during saturnalia the roman festival houses were decorated with evergreens again yeah. it's that time of renewal and we know what Saturnalia was like, drinking sex and everybody changing positions in society for a day. 
sorry, you can't say sex and changing positions in the, in the same yeah. breath like that. I was like halfway through that sentence and I thought this isn't going to come out the way I intended it. No. Anyway, <laughs> um, we also have to consider the story of St. Boniface cutting down Donegal's oak. Donegal, this is in the 8th century, Donegal was a pagan and mm-hmm. allegedly he was worshipping an oak tree along with his men. Um, so St. Boniface, I'm really paraphrasing this story, but there's a lot more by the grace of God, etc. St. Boniface came along and cut down the tree and planted an evergreen tree instead. And so so that the pagans would then worship this evergreen tree because it was representative of the eternal life offered by God again. And it's just so rude. You can't go is, around cutting down oak trees. Especially someone's sacred tree. I think this story is far more representative of St. Boniface came along, discovered a pocket of druids, didn't really like what they were doing, and um, kind of, you know, pissed on their parade a bit. (laughs) Also, it's like, talks about sort of planting a tree. They take a while to grow, Boniface. Yeah. (laughs) Not if God is your wingman, apparently. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Um. (laughs) There is a record that trees were decorated in Germany in the 1600s, um, but I have to say the claims have been disputed that it was that early on. So don't know on that one sort of, you know, the, the 16th century were people bringing in trees and decorating them at that time. We're not entirely sure. We do have the medieval paradise, paradise plays, though. They're really interesting. I think they come out of the Roman Saturnalia tradition again, whereby you would do, you know, this is where our pantomimes come from where yeah. you would have these little mock plays and things which might talk about political theatre and political stuff, but also they used to take, um, the medieval ones would take Bible stories. And the Garden of Eden was a really popular one, mm. um, which they would do. And obviously, if you're going to put a tree on stage, you don't want it to be one that's going to die. So they would quite often use an evergreen and they would tie apples to it. And they used to be just real apples. And then later on, as glass blowing became more um sophisticated they would have blown glass apples that they would use to decorate the treat with that's pretty cool um but obviously they didn't just use bible type stuff but obviously the bible is a huge collection of stories and was it was very very pop i mean there's a lot of material there you could have a a new play for every week of the year if you wanted to Mm. if you're looking for inspiration (laughs) yeah um yeah 15th century cistercian monastery in portugal um did apparently gather in evergreens and decorate with them um, and the quote goes something along the lines of and you shall gather on this night a branch of green laurel and set thereon oranges and all manner of good things included nuts and coins and things like that this is a weirdly pagan thing for a cistercian monastery to be doing because this is basically synthetic magic um in the pagan tradition if you did something like this and you put on things like oranges, which are representative of wealth and coins and nuts, which are representative of wisdom, but also financial acumen. That's all kind of what you're saying. Add a lit candle to that mix. And what you've got is that's a money spell. Yeah. Which, in fairness, <laughs> is a lot of what Christmas trees and stuff are. They are big money spells. They are big sort of put out shiny things and make the sun come back. <laughs> that that is lit. I, I, I've really dumbed that down, but that is the sympathetic magic behind Christmas there trees. There is also just like a like make good things appear, and then we put the presents underneath the tree. Of it, it's kind of well, like could, it works. You could say it works. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, we then hop into the sixteenth sixteenth century. Uh, Martin Luther, um, the uh, the German nailing decrees to church doors. Martin Luther. Um, added candles to an evergreen tree which seems quite brave really considering the it's, it's very flammable very brave, yeah um and uh 1539 a christmas tree was placed in the cathedral uh, of strasbourg so we do have records of that yes um which i think i think it's really interesting that again the first alleged one where we've got a written record is the christmas tree was brought into a cathedral so you're dressing up a cathedral with something that was theoretically considered quite pagan (laughs) yeah um and then you have the modern christmas tree um german-born queen charlotte who was the mother of queen victoria introduced Mm -hmm. the custom at a christmas party in 1800 um and it was a party she was specifically giving for the royal children um and victoria remembered that 
very fondly that through her childhood there would always be a Christmas tree and she would also have her own personal Christmas tree in her bedroom that would just appear there as if by magic. Um, the royal family kept the tradition up and after Victoria married Albert in 1841 the custom became more widespread. Albert obviously being her first cousin and German was all, uh, all for this um, Christmas tree tradition. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> I've got one. Okay. All right. So crackers, Christmas crackers were invented to use up leftover gunpowder. That's one of those things where it sounds so nuts, it sounds so bonkers that it should be true, and I kind of like it as a story, but I'm going to say that it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's uh, Love the creativity, but it is definitely false. Uh, they were invented in the 19th century by a shop owner who rather suspiciously is called John Smith, <laughs> that I just find immediately suspicious, um, and it was a marketing campaign to sell his sweets. Quite an ingenious marketing campaign because it's still going many years later. <laughs> yeah, like it really worked, and uh, there is something to be said of you know you will get a loud bang. You'll you know there's this whole kind of uh, it, this sort of firework inside of it. It's a it's a game, and yeah, the novelty of that works well. I mean, even now people get crackers. Like, there's nothing really in a cracker which is really worth the price of the cracker, but for some reason it's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, true or false, Christmas was cancelled for 20 years. How good's your history? Ooh, <laughs> this one is true, and it's our good friend Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> good old Ironside. Um, yeah. When Oliver Cromwell took over the rulership of the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth at that time was England, Wales and Scotland. It wasn't the rest of the world. This was yeah. in 1653. Stricter laws were enforced against any special Christmas church services. That was that was the big kind of the beginning of it. Yeah. Um, within the context of Puritan reform, where the celebration of Christmas was considered wasteful, gluttonous, immoral, and idolatrous, a lot of things were cancelled. Um, in 1645, Parliament produced a new directory for public worship, which made it clear that all feast days were to be spent in respectful contemplation and not celebrated. So yeah. that went down like a lead balloon. Um, Christmas was rejected as a joyful period. And bear in mind up until this point, from the medieval era through the Renaissance, you know, you had a, everyone, no matter how rich, how poor, everyone celebrated the 12 days of Christmas. You had 12 days of rest and, you know, a little bit of debauchery as well. But And yeah. people needed that time off because they worked bloody hard. Um Instead, here comes Oliver Cromwell saying, no, this is this is ridiculous. You ought to be praying for those 12 days, not making special food, not doing anything you wouldn't do. You should also be fasting a lot and you should probably not be engaging in sexual activity. So the complete opposite of what everyone was used to doing for Christmas. Yeah, um, I do find it funny that Oliver Cromwell's like, be at church, be at church. And then on Christmas Day, he's like, no church. <laughs> yes, yes. No special church service. We're not allowed to mention it. Um, yeah, Christmas yeah. was rejected as a, as a joyful period and was instead given over to reflecting on your sins from the previous year. So yeah, that sounds like loads of fun. I do honestly think that it was one of the biggest elements, and not the only, obviously, <laughs> but I do think that uh, the, the sort of the cancellation of Christmas was one of the reasons that a lot of people went, right, this is the last straw, <laughs> bring back the royals, because this is, you're making life too miserable now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so from 1643 until 1660, so shy of shy of 20 years, but Christmas yeah. celebrations were officially illegal and the prohibition on Christmas was about as popular and successful as any other prohibition in the history of human beings has been and led to pro-Christmas riots. Yep. <laughs> so apparently rioting at Christmas is, is also kind of a tradition. Yep. <laughs> Um, and of course, it was then returned, and uh, we've never we've never cancelled it since. Okay. <coughs> <laughs> right. The Star of Bethlehem was created by the devil. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to be tolerant, but seriously, who believes this shit? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's false. Uh, now, there are some religious groups that argue that the star which led the wise men to Bethlehem was created by Satan in order to lead other religious groups um, in um, idolatry. Uh, 
because apparently no one can have fun a fun winter celebration without someone somewhere shitting on it. <laughs> um, in reality, we know that any wise men who visited Jesus most likely didn't show up until he was about five. Um, some sources even say twelve. They probably didn't travel together, and a <laughs> sorry, they yeah, they probably didn't actually travel together. And a literal star, as in a literal ball of flaming gas, probably had nothing to do with it. Um, here's a contentious point: there may not have been any wise men. Um, in fact, the Bible never says three wise men, or rather. It says that there are three gifts that were brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It never says that there were three mice men. There might have been 12. There might have been one. There might not have been any. Um, yeah. We know the synoptic gospels that make up the bulk of the New Testament are, A, written in code. That's the Persia format, in case you're interested. It's a really interesting aside, again, looking at the Bible from the perspective, certainly looking at the New Testament from the perspective of it wasn't safe for a lot of this stuff to be written down because... The Romans had become justifiably afraid of Christianity and they'd also become afraid of the Jewish uprisings that were happening. Um, and they tended to like to discourage that sort of thing. So a lot of stuff was passed on orally and then written down in code. So things like um, when Herod was killing off all the firstborn sons and mm. Mary, Joseph and Jesus escaping into Egypt. They didn't actually literally go to Egypt. Egypt was code for somewhere else. Um, so I, I always find that very interesting. So it does mean you can't take the Gospels literally, or you shouldn't, because you're going to look like a bit of a nonce, to be honest. Um, B, they were reworked several times. It, there's a reason why you have four Gospels, which are largely saying the same thing, and yet written in slightly different ways. Uh, mm. Basically, they were rebranded, remarketed, rewritten to appeal to different audiences. Um, certainly... Certainly two, two of them were written to appeal to a more oppressed audience, which is why you get you get things like um, Jesus suddenly becoming the son of a poor carpenter, for example. That that was never originally a thing. But if you want to appeal to, you know, slaves, paupers, um, women, etc., you, you gear it towards the oppressed minority so they can identify with the story. Um, mm. This is... This was marketing for a growing religious cult, one of the successful ones which became an organised religion. And I am not casting any aspersions because all popular religions started as cults at some point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> some have remained cults. Um, <laughs> again, not casting aspersions, but I think we can all think of a few. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah... Um, it is possible that the star actually referred to the Star of David, indicating Jesus's royal lineage. But gospel writers who wanted to appeal to slaves, women and, and paupers, as said before, could not allow that in a text because Jesus needed to be poor and relatable. Hence, you know, they kind of obscure the meaning a little bit. Um, it's also possible that Jesus being by all existing accounts a precocious child did in fact attract the attention of certain learned men who traveled to visit this child and argue religious doctrine with him um you need to really understand ascetic judaism to get this um and then the reason they later had him murdered by the romans kind of becomes clear uh, learned men and women at the time also included astronomers who predicted courses on Earth by watching the stars. Um, and of course, um, I think, you know, the important thing to remember is that the gifts themselves are meant to be symbolic of Jesus's status and his life. You know, it's not just randomly they went, well, we've just brought these things. You know, one is one is symbolic of the fact that he is a king, that, you know, the gold. One is symbolic of, of kind of his holy... Um, sort of position uh, which is i think the frankincense and yeah. then the myrrh it was is basically symbolic of the fact that he's been born to die you know as a sacrifice because myrrh was used um on dead bodies so far as i remember yeah no that's that's correct yeah so like the whole kind of idea <laughs> it, it starts to become a little bit more kind of metaphorical um but essentially it literally had nothing to do with the devil um there is the slimmest chance it has something to do with the five-pointed star, which is as old as the equal armed cross and just as pagan, but that is very difficult to prove. 
yeah um the reason we lost so much via pa from paganism and paganism is an umbrella term there are many people who practice it in many different ways yeah. um the reason we lost so much is because they didn't write stuff down because it was considered too holy to commit to a physical presence on the page or on a stone or what have you mm. so yeah that's why that's why a lot of it was rediscovered um okay Mistletoe is unlucky because allegedly it provided the wood for the crucifixion. True or false? <laughs> I'm sorry. I find this really funny because if you've ever looked at mistletoe. So, yeah, how? <laughs> <laughs> um, it is actually a real superstition. But I don't think it's very likely because, as Madeline said, mistletoe is not exactly the woodiest of plants. Mm -hmm. um, and not even desert mistletoe could produce that quantity of wood in a timely time frame. Yeah. I, I just also like the idea that they're like, all right, just grab the mistletoe. But why? We could just use all of this other wood, which is so much more in abundance. No, no, no. no the we're going to use the mistletoe. Let's be the mistletoe. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's likely a link with the dying god theme. And, you know, in this instance with Balder. Yeah, Balder the Beautiful from uh, Norse mythology, who has, who also has a whole mythology whereby he becomes resurrected. Yes. Um, so, yeah. If you want to advance a political religious agenda, it behooves you to attach your political religious agenda to an existing body of myth. It makes it travel a lot further and a lot faster. Um, yeah. Again costing no aspersions because this isn't the only religion that's ever done this yeah Take i mean the, the romans, romans for did example. it all the time yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but at the same time it, if you start trying to separate history from mythology then it it does paint a picture and you can sort of see that a certain narrative lens was being applied at times yeah absolutely okay uh the stripes on the donkey's back are because the th um are because they Sorry. The stripes on a donkey's back are because the thrice marked beast bore Jesus at the important moments of his life. Yeah, okay, before we get into the true or false of that, I think most people <laughs> probably have an idea. Um these these moments are obviously he carried Mary to Bethlehem, allegedly. The donkey mm -hmm. that is. Not Jesus. <laughs> the donkey carried Mary to Bethlehem. <laughs> he carried Jesus when he arrived, um, at Passover and people threw palm leaves and palm fronds um, for him to walk over. Well, he's basically being acknowledged as king of the Jews at that point, which was part of the, the, the political issue. And um, a third time when he was riding back to the Garden of Gethsemane and he, um, in some stories it said, they say there's a, a an unbroken colt, which could be a horse or an ass or something, uh, but most sources sort of say it was a donkey again um this not is not the same donkey i should say it's not, not the, the same donkey throughout not the same <laughs> that would be a very elderly donkey by this point <laughs> yeah <laughs> um okay so obviously um it's it's false um all feral and partially domesticated horses and donkeys have those uh feral stripes um only continual breeding and domestication gets rid of them. Yeah. Um, but it is a really interesting example of how people tie stories together using symbolism. Yeah, again, this is something that I got fed at the convent, as in the... Because these stripes, they, there are two that go over the withers and there's a long, like, it's called a list, a long dark stripe that travels the length of the donkey's spine. And the two together form a cross it's like, well, yeah. it, the donkey is a sacred animal because it carries the cross to mark that it carried Jesus, etc. Yeah. Catholicism. Um, and, it, and to be honest, you there's an element of that whereby that might have that symbolism might have also been attached to the donkey, um, again as a form of basically as a form of code, yeah. whereby people could practice religion but in a subvert way. Um, in order to you know to, because they were forbidden from doing it or because it had to be quiet or you know things like that so it might very well be that actually again people knew that literally this wasn't the case but by using that kind of story or using certain things they were able to 
past stories, um, past meaning, and also, um, you know, worship in a way that wouldn't endanger them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Hanukkah is the most important Jewish holiday, or slash, it is the Jewish version of Christmas. True or false? Yeah, okay, so it's, whenever people are like, well, it's just X Christmas, or it's just that, it's like, no, you can't, you can't, um... You can't just say that it's the equivalent of. I mean, I know what people are saying innocently when they say it's the equivalent of in terms of they're thinking, well, you know, how does it mark sort of, you know, where does it rank in sort of importance and stuff like that? But uh, no, (laughs) that's a false statement. Absolutely. Um, And I have to say, I've, you know, kind of taken it from from actual Jews I I know as well. Every practicing Jew I've ever spoken to lists Hanukkah as nice, but not especially important. As in, literally, that's that's a, almost a literal quote from two or three people. Yeah. And there are others who've said more or less the same thing. Um, yeah. There are seven, eight or 12 major Jewish festivals, depending on who you talk to. And again, Judaism is not one religion. It's one umbrella term for different subsects of that religion. Same as Christianity yeah. is. Um, but... The, the overwhelming vote is that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is considered the most important festival. Yeah. But for, I, I think it is just because of proximity. So people are like, oh, Hanukkah, you know, it's, yeah. oh, because it's all happening at the same time. It must be ascribed the same level of importance. And, well, um, I think it's kind of because there's the lighting of the menorah as well. And it's all mm. very pretty and it's kind of like... But you could as easily say, well, that's very much like Imolk, isn't it? Where you're lighting candles, it's candle mass, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but they're not the same thing at all. Yeah. Not really. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Saint Nicholas, Santa Claus and Father Christmas are all the same person. <laughs> uh, this is false. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it is. Though it might surprise a few people. So Father Christmas, which is who we mostly refer to over here in Britain, has his roots in some very sinister origins you will be unsurprised to discover. So Odin, the Yule One or Yule Father, um, not being the least of these, um, he really did influence a lot of it. Um and again, uh, he wasn't just about gifts so much as reckoning. Um, and the the reindeer weren't pulling a sleigh full of toys. Uh, they were the wild hunt of Draugr. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like Father Christmas, except it's Odin with his wild hunt. Just <laughs> and as long as you have kind of adhered to sort of rules of hospitality and stuff like that, um, which again, when you think about the tradition of leaving Father Christmas, you know, something to eat or stuff like that, the rules of hospitality, someone's come into your home, you must feed them, you must give them sort of warmth and shelter and stuff like that, and thus you will be rewarded if you've done that. If, however, you have failed to do that, the Draugr will eat your limbs. <laughs> yeah, things won't go well for you. No. <laughs> at all. Um Santa Claus was an invention of the early Dutch and Deutsch settlers of America, uh, called Sinterklaas. He appears to be a mashup of Saint Nick and Father Christmas, um, and possibly a few other sources as well. But obviously, I think even over here, the whole Santa Claus thing has kind of started to take over from Father Christmas a little bit. I think so as well. And I mean, I remember Sinterklaas, because I... I used to live in Holland um, and uh, Sinterklaas does have kind of, uh, you know, he's got a very specific look. And what's interesting as well is how if you then go over to sort of things like you get sort of Father Christmas like figures also if you go into Spain and stuff like that, because the Spanish don't actually celebrate Christmas on the 25th. They celebrate it on the 6th of January. Yeah. So basically Um, Pentecost. Yeah, um, and there's this whole thing when I was in um, uh, Tenerife, I think. Uh, No, sorry. When I was in Menorca, there was this whole thing of the arrival of the kings, essentially. And it was very reminiscent of the way that sort of the the arrival of Sinterklaas 
is done um, in Holland, where I remember watching Sinterklaas arrive, and he he, he would arrive on a boat. <laughs> he'd arrive on a boat, and he'd have the the Schwarzerpiets, um, which is a whole other thing that we're not even going to get into <laughs> because, oh dear. Um, but you know, the, it was this whole big thing, and it feels very similar, um, but is different, I think, to Father Christmas. And I think the reason we say all oh, that they're all the same person is that because they kind of have similar sort of roles because Sinterklaas brings like sweeties and stuff like that you know he, he brings gifts and stuff like that they have all been mashed up and there's been a lot of crossover but their origins are different yeah definitely which which brings us on to Saint Nicholas who was a fourth century bishop of Myrna who did many things worthy of note the ones we can prove include debating the promulgation of canon law whereby Pentecost is counted 50 days after Easter on the Roman solar can calendar and not on the Jewish lunar calendar, and insisting that that rogue Bishop <laughs> Miletius, who caused a, a schism in the faith, was to remain in Lycopolis and that while he could keep his episcopal title, anyone ordained by him had to be reordained and receive the laying on of hands. <laughs> I've got to say, nothing makes me more Christmassy. Than, uh... <laughs> yeah, I thought that. I thought that. Strangely, um, we we seem to remember him for the sensational stories, like uh, the well, he was no, he was actually known for anonymously giving out gifts to the poor, and he did used to drop coins down chimneys, which would then land in the socks that were being dried on the on, on the hearth. The, on, the, on the hearth, yeah. Yeah. So that was something that did actually happen, as far as we know. Um, the gruesome story about the boys pickled in a barrel by an innkeeper during a time of fan famine um, and then being brought back to life by Saint Nicholas which is when he became the patron saint of children is most likely sensationalism um, put about by one of his biographers about 100 years after he lived I mean remember things like Saint Patrick and Saint Columba uh, driving the demon out of a pail of water and, and stuff like that can you imagine snickering yeah. <laughs> so yeah there's nothing like well it's like well he's a saint it's like yes why is he a saint because he was a wonderful person oh that's boring yes and he resurrected these five boys who were pickled in salt kind of thing <laughs> oh that's pretty interesting um but yeah so you can immediately see how you have these different sort of figures um you have odin um you have saint nicholas um and they kind of merge and father christmas i think really does have that you know um the, the very sort of anglo-saxon um uh, <laughs> kind of rules which also you're like if you look at other sort of uh sort of germanic sort of father christmasy like figures and stuff like that terrifying i'm just just putting out like krampus and stuff like that horrifying horrifying stuff um yeah. But you can see the whole, all of these traditions all kind of marrying into one another, which is why I think we tend to think of them all being the same figure and why they do kind of get mixed and matched so much now. But then they do kind of start off as sort of being distinct and then sort of merging as we become increasingly cosmopolitan and continue sharing mythologies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Which brings us to our final true or false for this episode. Mm -hmm. uh, giving presents on Christmas Day is a recent tradition. Okay, so I feel like you're actually sort of... you. This is a tricky one. This is a tricky one because um, people are immediately going to go, what? No, what are you talking about? Exchanging gifts is... We've been doing that, you know, around sort of winter and the solstice and stuff like that for years and years and years. And it is in the wording there, which is giving presents on Christmas Day is a recent yeah. tradition. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to say that that is true. It is true. Up until the 1800s, they were given on New Year's Day. So very much like you were saying about Spain and mm -hmm. Holland and the fact that, you know, Generally, the Orthodox Church celebrates it in a slightly different way, whereby the gifts turn up on Pentecost, or the gifts turn up on New Year's Day. The idea was that gifts were given on New Year's Day as kind of tokens going forward into the new year to help you along. And they were usually useful items as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, to be honest, it makes a considerable amount of sense when you think about it in terms of like well it's the new year here are some things for the new year for yeah. you yeah absolutely um there is of course also the boxing day tradition 
Um, yeah, the Feast of Stephen uh, was during medieval times and later. It was the day when the quarterly rents were due. So if you were, a, you were a tenant farmer or you were a serf or whatever, you had to pay a certain amount of money based on your on what you'd managed to um, make via crops and sheep, etc., on mm. the Lord's land. And they would come round on that day. And if, you know, the day after Christmas Day, they'd come round and collect the rents, um, which kind of <laughs> sucks, really, doesn't it? Middle of Christmas. Um, but it was also uh, the day when the poor boxes were opened up and arms were distributed to those in need, which is why it became Boxing Day. Yeah. Um, it's not about fighting with your relatives like I thought so many years. <laughs> Did you... <laughs> See, I thought I I always used to think it was called Boxing Day because it was it was the day where you'd be sort of tidying up all the boxes left over from Christmas. Or that you'd be sort of putting things away. Yeah, I mean that's no more stupid than my my what I thought it was. But, uh, it's about opening the the poor boxes. So there you go. <laughs> and there we go. There were our, uh, our our popular sort of myths surrounding Christmas. Were you surprised by any? Did you guess any of those correctly or incorrectly? Do let us know. And uh, is there any piece of information you think that might actually turn? Um, what we thought to be false or true um, the other way, please do let us know. Um, of course, we wish you a fantastically happy Christmas, uh, but before we let you go on to enjoy your feasting and festivities and uh, frolicking, um, <laughs> it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation. Um, and Jules, I believe that you've got a fun one for us. Yes, um, this at the moment this film is only available on Disney Plus I'm afraid but while it's not actually a Christmas film it's got that almost pantomime humour type um, quality to it that would make it a great sort of I've just eaten too much Christmas dinner I need to sit in front of a film type <laughs> thing to watch um, that's uh, Rosalind which is a, a semi-modern retelling of um, Romeo and Juliet from Rosalind's perspective um, and the idea is that, you know, Romeo, obviously at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, is, you know, desperately in love with Rosalind and he wants her to run away with him. He's been meeting her on a balcony, etc, etc, saying various romantic things to her. And, you know, she does, she thinks she is in love with him. She does, but she hesitates when he says, let us run away together. And Rosalind is Juliet's cousin, so she is just as forbidden to him as Juliet would be. Mm. Um, and she sort of blows him off. And sort of said, no, um, uh, uh, no, uh, I've got to go. And kind of accidentally dumps him. Right. Uh, it's set in sort of like Shakespearean type times, but there are a few modern anachronisms deliberately added, which are very, very funny. And then her cousin Juliet turns up and suddenly she's sort of trying to get, Rosalind's trying to get Romeo back and she actually sees him coming to Juliet's balcony and saying the very same things. Yeah. And so she's trying to sabotage Juliet and Romeo's romance all the way, right up until the point where it's like, oh God, they're going to end up dead because of this, um, yeah. when she's really trying to sabotage it. And there is a love interest in there for Rosalind as well. It's light, it's funny, it's obviously not Shakespeare, it's obviously not the legend that the Shakespeare play was originally based on, which was a cautionary tale for young people. Um, yeah. And it's not a tragedy either. <laughs> this is oh, an alternative okay. version. It's a, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Don't go into it with your thinking head on as such. Um, but yeah, it, I, I enjoyed it. And I'm normally a little bit more intolerant of these sort of reimaginings, particularly when they use more modern language. But this actually really came together quite well. Okay. All right. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. <laughs> and on that note, guys, we're going to say thank you very much for listening. Happy Christmas. Joyous Yule. <laughs> Good Krampusnacht. <laughs> <laughs> Season's greetings, guys. Yeah. Um, have a great one. And we'll catch you guys next week. We'll catch you guys next year. <laughs> this is true. All right. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers. 
or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.